Hey, hey, hey. What is good, everybody? Timeless Podcast, episode 10, coming in hot. All right, so... Sorry, my voice just cracked there. Um, So last week, we went over The Score Takes Care of Itself by Bill Walsh. This week, we're going to do part two of that book, The Score Takes Care of Itself. So where we ended, so much good stuff in here, we had to divide it up into two parts. So let's just jump right in. So we left off with uh, Bill Walsh talking about Joe Montana, his quarterback, and Montana's leadership style, very much a lead-by-example leadership example. And now we go to... We're going to pick right up, right up there. So let's go to the book. Montana's kind of leadership is a great starting point, in my view, for what any good leader strives to do, namely bring out the best in people. In order to manage people effectively, you must act responsibly and professionally in your capacity as a leader. In this regard, you should employ an approach that is based on the following principles. Number one, treat people like people. Every player on our team wore a number. No player on our team was just a number. Treat each member of your organization as a unique person. I was never pals with players, but I never viewed any of them as an anonymous member of an organizational herd. Really good first point there. Uh, you know, if, if you're in a leadership position, I think that's really important, you know, you, especially if you want to make people value and then bring out the best in them and make them feel valued, you know, you can't treat them just like a number or a cog in a machine. Each person is a unique entity, unique person, and you need to treat them as such. All right. Number two. Seek positive relationships through encouragement, support, and critical evaluation. Maintain an uplifting atmosphere at work with your ongoing, positive, enthusiastic, energizing behavior. Number three, afford everyone equal dignity, respect, and treatment. Number four, blend honesty and diplomacy. At times, it is both humane and practical to soften the heavy blow of a demotion or termination with compassion and empathy. It will also help prevent or reduce a toxic response that can ripple through the organization when word spreads that someone feels he or she has been treated roughly without cause. Nevertheless, rough treatment serves a purpose occasionally. Number five, allow for a wide range of moods from serious to very relaxed in the workplace depending on the circumstances. Set the acceptable tone by your own demeanor and develop the fine art of knowing when to crack the whip or crack a joke. 
And then he goes on to give an example here. In the middle of our second Super Bowl season, Joe Montana threw three interceptions against Cincinnati in the first half. We were getting beaten decisively. What was the correct response for me? Bark at him to bear down and try harder? Scold him or what? As he came off the field following his third interception, I pulled him over and asked him innocently, How's it going out there, Joe? He got my joke, and I think it took some of the pressure off and anger he had in himself. Things improved, he got going in the second half, and we won. Maybe in another situation my approach would have been more critical. You have to have a feel for it. So that's important. You know, being adaptable, adapting your approach to things to, uh, to every single situation. You know, you, you gotta be, you gotta be able to adapt. That's key. All right. Number six, avoid pleading with players to get going or trying to relate to them by adopting their vernacular. Strong leaders don't plead with individuals to perform. Number seven, make each person in your employee very aware that his or her well-being has a high priority in the organization and that the well-being of the organization must be his or her highest professional priority. Number eight, give no VIP treatment except on, very, on a very short-term reward basis that is understood as such. For example, a special parking spot for the employee of the month. So that's, that's something like that. You know, he references a special parking spot. That's that's a reward, not a VIP treatment. So there, you got to be able to distinguish, as a leader, be able to distinguish between the two. Number nine, speak in positive terms about former members of your organization. This creates a very positive impression and signals that respect and loyalty extend beyond an individual's time on your payroll. Number ten. Demonstrate interest in and support for the extended families of members of the organization. Number 11, communicate on a first-name basis without allowing relationships to become buddy-buddy. Deep resentments can develop when others see you playing favorites by exhibiting a special bond with select members of the group. And lastly, number 12, don't let differences or animosity linger. Cleanse the wound before it gets infected. So those are the 12, kind of his 12, 12 steps or 12 uh, pieces, if you will, to, to being an effective leader. And that last one, I think, is really, well, they're all important, but the last one especially is, you know, you can't let differences of opinion or any animosity you have towards someone else linger and you can't let if you're you know if you're in charge of an organization you can't let not just differences that you might have with others but differences that your subordinates might have with each other um you can't as as he says allow that wound to get infected before it just it festers and then it it gets in the gets in the bloodstream of the organization and then you know can become a cancer. So you got to if you see differences or animosity between two people in your organization, you know, do your best to monitor that and and clean it up before it becomes a a problem.
All right, so next. This is from, he's referencing General George Patton here. He goes, in his letter of instruction number one, which was written for officers under his command in the U.S. Third Army, Patton offered six key dictates. You should evaluate each one and determine whether you can utilize it in your own command. Number one, remember that praise is more valuable than blame. Remember, too, that your primary mission as a leader is to see with your own eyes and be seen by your own troops while engaged in personal reconnaissance. Obviously, that applies to battle, but you can apply that to your own, uh, to your own endeavors. Number two, use every means before and after combat to tell troops what they are going to do and what they have done. Number three, discipline is based on pride in the profession of arms, on meticulous attention to details, and on mutual respect and confidence. Discipline must be a habit so ingrained that it is stronger than the excitement of battle or the fear of death. Number four, officers must assert themselves by example and by voice. Number five, general officers must be seen in the front line during action. Number six, there is a tendency for the chain of command to overload junior officers by excessive requirements in the way of training and reports. You will alleviate this burden by eliminating non-essential demands. So that is from George Patton. Legendary General Walsh is quoting him in his book here. And obviously, uh, you know, he's writing about something that's going to pertain to war, but everything he just said there has relevance to what uh, to what you're doing. You can apply it in any situation. All right, next. So the next... Next piece, segment is, he titles it, Don't Let Anyone Call You a Genius. I learned soon enough that an inflated label like genius or any other form of hyperbole comes with a big downside, that buying into what people say about you can create both external and internal problems, making your life and job a lot tougher than they already are. So... You know, that's just kind of a way to keep your ego in check, certainly not buying into the hype. But, you know, you don't want to, uh, you don't want to buy into it to inflate your own ego and you don't want to buy into it because a lot of times people, if especially he's talking about, you know, having a label like genius, then people are going to start to expect certain things from you and then they get disappointed when you don't, you don't get them or don't attain whatever they think that you should. So you can't you can't buy into that. It'll not only is it, it's unhealthy for your own ego because oh, it can get too inflated and it's unhealthy for your internal for your psyche too, you know, if you start to buy into other people's expectations of you. So don't uh don't let that happen. All right, next. He, he titles this section, Don't Beat Around the Bush When Describing a Bush. So to the book. Former Cleveland and Cincinnati head coach Paul Brown taught me a lot during the eight years I worked for him as an assistant coach. Among his many talents was direct communication. He was clear, specific, and comprehensive without an ounce of ambiguity. 
I like his approach and recommend the same for you. Here's an example of how he ensured that everyone was on the same page. On the first day of each season's training camp, Brown would give a lecture to the squad that covered his own standard of performance, what he expected in all areas. Of course, a leader's personal example is perhaps the most powerful teaching tool, but words have their own power and specificity. Brown would start each season with the phrase, gentlemen, let's set the record straight, and then proceed to do exactly that, step by step, Specific after specific, he would cover every aspect of being on the Cincinnati Bengals football team. And then he goes on to discuss, you know, everything, what he would set from how to wear your uniform, how to dress for games, how to organize your locker, all kinds of different things. So the point of this and the importance of it is setting expectations for what for your people you know telling them what the what your standard of performance is and how you expect everybody to live up to that uh you know i mean he mentions that obviously your 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 personal example and leading by example is going to be the most powerful tool so to speak in your toolbox but especially you know, at the start of a, you know, he's, he references the start of a season, or if you're, you know, in a business at the start of each fiscal year, the start of each quarter, however you want to do it, or, and, or, you know, whenever you're onboarding new, bringing new people aboard, you want to clearly define what you expect of them so that they know. You know, he talks about that the whole title of the, the section is don't beat around the bush when describing the bush. So when you're describing your standards and what you expect, don't don't beat around that. You know, tell them what you expect. And then he says, this is from the book, employees can thrive in an environment where they know exactly what is expected of them, even when those expectations are very high. When it comes to telling people what you expect from them, don't be subtle, don't be coy, don't be vague. What is your version of, gentlemen, this is a football. So define define your standards so people, even if they're high, define it so people know what to do. So, And then obviously, once you go on to define what those expectations are, make sure you hold people to that standard and especially hold yourself to that standard. Lead by example. Okay, so next section, talking about communication. To the book. While leadership still involves occasionally using a heavy-handed approach, my way or the highway, collaboration is required more than ever these days to obtain optimal results. These, these results only occur when you are able to bring out the full potential of your personnel. Quality collaboration is only possible in the presence of quality communication. That is, the free-flowing and robust exchange of information, ideas, and opinions, and having big ears. The skill of being a great listener is the first law of good communication. 
The second law is when you're not listening, ask good questions. For me, it meant I had to set aside certain aspects of my own ego talking too much and really listen to what talented individuals in the organization had to say. I had to learn that communication is not a one-way street. It's a two-way, three-way, every-way street. This is a challenge for some of us to put into practice because it's usually a hell of a lot easier to tell someone what to do than to listen to his or her suggestions and ideas, especially when you think that you have all the answers on a wide range of subjects. So, really, really important point here uh, is having, you know, if you're in a leadership position, to be able to collaborate and communicate with your people so that you're not running a, you know, my way or the highway dictatorship. And when you involve everybody else, one, they're going to feel more valued, right, to what you're doing. And it's going to make them want to perform better and contribute more. And it's going to be good for you too, because listen, you might think you have all the answers, but you probably don't. So the first law of good communication, be a good listener. Listen to what other people have to say. And, you know, if you're, you're in a collaborative environment, if you're the one ultimately calling the shots, you know, listening to what everybody else has to say is going to, it's going to help you to make the best decision to kind of understand everybody's ideas and what they might be able to contribute. Um, and that's difficult, you know, and he says it's, it's usually easier to tell someone what to do than to listen to their suggestions. Um, but if you want to create a winning culture, a winning team, a cohesive unit, it's, it's vitally important to, to listen to, listen to your people and make them feel like they're contributing to, you know, the larger, larger goal or larger operation. And chances are you're probably going to come to the best conclusion by having that collaborative process, especially if you're trying to solve a problem. You know, that's, that's really, really key. All right. So next section, he says, be a king without a crown. Even though I had virtually complete autonomy through most of my 10 years as head coach of the 49ers, I was never called coach Walsh. In fact, everyone in the organization was addressed by their first name, including me. I wanted no barriers such as rank or title to clog up productive interactions. No chain of command to produce a sense that instead of a real team, we were just a collection of isolated individuals on a totem pole of power belonging to small independent units. Rank, 
titles or inferred status can impede open communication in, in an environment where people thrive on helping one another. So that goes back to what we were just talking about. He's talking about, you know, you want to foster an environment of great collaboration and communication. And even though he was in charge, you know, be that king without a crown, have everyone call each other, even the superiors, by their first name. And how that kind of takes down a wall or a barrier of rank and order, title, all that stuff. So that you can create a real sense of 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 team you know you're it's a it's a real team environment right if you take out rank you know we're all equals here we're all trying to to get the objective done even though ultimately if you're you know the coach or the leader you're the one in charge you want if you want to create a successful organization a collaborative organization you got to strip all that stuff right is what he's saying here and that will allow for just kind of open communication and collaboration when people aren't, you know, afraid to say something because maybe they think their rank is too low, they can't speak up or whatever the case may be. So strip all that and you're good to go. All right, back to the book. One of the greatest and most neglected skills in leadership is the ability to listen. If someone told me that leadership is as easy as one, two, three, I'd reply only if the one, two, and three are as follows. Number one, listen. Number two, learn. And number three, lead. Let that sink in for a second. Number one, listen. Number two, learn. Number three, lead. I think that's vitally important. I mean, you got to listen. Listening in, in a lot of different things, not just leadership, is, is a neglected skill. I mean, but you got to, especially if you're in a leadership position, you got you got to listen to your people, you know, the, the troops on the ground. And, and uh, you know, I mean, especially if, you know, if you're a sales manager and you're leading a team of people, you know, maybe you've worked, you've worked your way up to where you're not in the field as much as you used to be. Well, you got to listen to the people in the field so that you know what's going on and you can, you know, if something's not working, you can adapt and uh, adapt and make, uh, you know, make changes as you need to. All right. Next section. Titled. Teaching defines your leadership. People say there are winners and losers in life, but typically it's more like this. There are winners and there are people who would like to be winners, but just don't know how to do it. Intelligent and talented people who are motivated can learn how to become winners if they have someone who will teach them. Leadership at its best is exactly that. Teaching skills, attitudes, and goals. Yes, goals are both defined and taught. To individuals who are part of your organization, most things in life require good teaching. Raising a family and educating children, running a company or sales team, or coaching athletes. So it's unfortunate 
that more people don't spend the time and thought required to do it effectively. Uh, I think that's key, that, you know, there there are people who would like to be winners but just don't know how to do it. And think of a perfect example since we're in the NFL playoffs. Uh, Vikings quarterback, Case Keenum, having a phenomenal season since taking over for Sam Bradford. Really a journeyman, a backup who never did anything in his pro career up until this season, you know, with, with the Texans and the Rams. But it's not that he was a loser, but now he got in a right situation with a good coach and a good offensive coordinator, Pat Shermer, who was willing to work with him and coach him properly. And look what happened. He blew up. So that's, that's environment is important. So, you know, People who, you know, have that internal drive and motivation can learn to become winners if they have someone who will teach them. All right, so then he goes, okay, back to the book. So I was, excuse me, I was fortunate in this area because I learned through the observation and study of tremendous teachers. Consequently, when I look back on my years as an assistant and head coach, which gives me great satisfaction, is not necessarily a Super Bowl championship or an award, but the experience of recognizing ability in a person and then teaching that individual how to reach his potential in ways that helped our team. That process, seeing someone I had evaluated, selected, and taught break out and do great things is what it's really all about for me. The source of my greatest pleasure in leadership, in my experience, this is what it takes to be a good teacher. Passion, expertise, communication, and persistence. And then he goes on to list uh, principles here. Number one, passion is not just having a desire to do the job of teaching. Passion is a love for the act of teaching itself, believing in your heart that it is not a means to an end, but an end in itself. In order to have passion, you must have, you must love the topic you teach. Number two, expertise is the inventory of knowledge and experience you possess on a particular subject. You are not necessarily born with it. You develop it, research it, thrive on learning as much about your subject as you possibly can. The greater your expertise, the greater your potential to teach, the stronger and more productive you can be as a leader. So be a knowledge junkie. Learn, have experiences. It will only improve your capacity as a leader. A teacher gains expertise by seeking out great teachers, mentors, and other sources of information and wisdom in a relentless effort to add to his or her own knowledge. So seek out a coach, seek out mentors, read, uh, do, you know, you don't have all the answers, but chances are there's someone out there who does. So that's... That's taking in, you know, having a coach and a mentor or teacher of your own is is a great, great investment. All right, number three, communication is the ability to organize and then successfully convey your informed thoughts. Number four, persistence is essential because knowledge is rarely imparted on the first attempt. One of the keys to successfully executing 
the complexities of the West Coast offense was my devotion to the principle of persistence. We did the same drills over and over again. I said essentially the same thing over and over, discussed the same information, concepts, and principles over and over. Gradually, my teaching stuck. Eventually, successful execution became almost automatic, even under extreme duress, because like air, my teaching was everywhere. While passion, expertise, communication, and persistence are the four essentials of good teaching and learning, I would also add these nuts and bolts practices to facilitate what you do as a leader who is a great teacher. Number one, use straightforward language. Number two, be concise. Number three, account for a wide range of difference in knowledge, experience, and comprehension among members of your organization. For me, it could be seen in the way I communicated one-on-one -on -one with an experienced superstar such as Jerry Rice or a first-year offensive guard who was learning the ropes of our system. This difference in content, depending on whom I was talking to and in what circumstance, was always factored into my teaching. Number four, account for some members of the group being more receptive and ready to learn than others. Number five, be observant during your comments. Know if you're connecting. Number six, strongly encourage note-taking. Number seven, employ a somewhat unpredictable presentation style. Droning on is the most common style, and you may have to work on stepping it up so that you don't fall into the drone trap. Number eight, organize with logical sequential building blocks in your communication. Number nine, encourage appropriate audience participation. Number ten, use visual aids. And number eleven, remember Sun Tzu. With more sophistication comes more control. The more you work at refining your teaching, increasing its sophistication, the greater your control of the teaching and learning process. All right. Next. So this section is as good as your, you're as good as your people. So he talks about uh, what to look for in hiring people and, and building your staff. So I'm going to go through these quickly here. Uh my checklist of personal qualities, assets, and potential staff members. Number one, a fundamental knowledge of the area he or she has been hired to manage. Number two, a relatively high but not manic level of energy and enthusiasm and a personality that is upbeat, motivated, and animated. Groups will often collectively take on the personality of their department head. Number three, to discern talent and potential employees. Four, an ability to communicate. Number five, unconditional loyalty to both you and other staff members. And then he goes on, my checklist for keeping good staff members on the same page. You must establish clear parameters for your staff regarding the overall method by which you expect things to be done. Number two, any philosophical differences that crop up must be identified and addressed by you in private meetings with the individuals. Number three, you must recognize that staff members may work in different ways using approaches that are at variance with yours. Number four, to ensure unanimity throughout the staff, make unannounced visits to various department meetings. Number five, don't cede inordinate power or control to a staff member simply because you are relieved to have an experienced and proven performer come on board. Number six, sometimes a staff member may intentionally teach a philosophy that is at odds with your code of conduct in the belief that it conforms to your philosophy. Uh, if that happens, you need to take corrective action. 
just point out point out the issue to them and correct it. Uh, number seven, be alert for those staff members who seek to use their position to teach and express their personal beliefs. Remember Mike Ditka's comment on leadership after his Bears won a Super Bowl championship. Personal contact is part of hands-on management. Go to the other guy's office, tell him what you have in mind so there is no misunderstanding. All right, next he goes on to talk about how to combat complacency. He calls it success disease. So how to maintain, even when you've achieved a level of success, how to uh, how to maintain that success and so that you don't succumb to what he what Walsh calls success disease. So these are the ten there are ten reasons here that he uses to combat success disease. There are specific actions I took based on the lessons learned after the 49ers experience with success disease following our first Super Bowl championship. They are very effective, although there is no guarantee in following them that in following them you'll fend off the fallout from achievements, specifically success disease. So number one, formally celebrate and observe the momentous achievement, the victory, and make sure that everyone feels ownership in it. Number two, allow pats on the back for a limited time. Then formally return to business as usual by letting everyone know the party is over. Number three, be apprehensive about applause. Instruct your team on the pitfalls of listening to accolades from those outside the organization. The praise can become a hindrance to buckling down to the hard sacrifice that will be required ahead. Number four, develop a plan for your staff that gets them back into the mode of operation that produces success in the first place. Don't assume that you're just going to go back to your winning ways. You have to continue to do the things that got you there. Number five, address specific situations that need shoring up. Focus on the mistakes that were made and things that were not up to snuff in the success. Point out deficiencies and the need to find remedies for them. Number six, be demanding. Do not relax. Hold people to even higher expectations. Don't relax your standard of performance. The standard of performance is always in a state of refinement to raise performance. That's your gold standard, the point of reference above everything else, including the one loss record, Super Bowl titles. So don't change your standard. So that's key. No matter what, no matter how high up you go, make sure you don't slip on your, your standard and even refine it to make it, you know, to make it higher. Hold people to a higher standard the higher up you go. That way you'll be able to stay at the top. Number seven, don't fall prey to overconfidence so that you feel you can or should make a change for the sake of change. Number eight, use the time immediately following success as an opportunity to make hard decisions, including elevation or demotion of the individuals who contributed or didn't to the victory. The window is brief. Use it. Number nine, never fall prey to the belief that getting to the top makes everything easy. In fact, what makes it easier 
or in fact, what it makes easier is the job of motivating those who want your spot at the top. Achievement, great success, puts a big bullseye on your back. You are now the target, clearly identified for all your competitors to aim at. And number 10, one of my favorite quotes in the book, recognize that mastery is a process, not a destination. Key, key, key. Recognizing that mastery is a process, not a destination. Okay. Next example. All right, and he's talking about... Uh, this is he's again in the section essentials of a winning of a winning team. So we're talking here about having uh, good character is contagious. And the example he provides is Ronnie Lott, who is a Hall of Fame safety, uh, and he talks about he's going to talk about the example that that Ronnie Lott set. So he says. Ronnie drove others to sacrifice at his level by setting extreme personal standards of physical intensity and concentration for himself in practice, especially in practice where it can be tempting to coast, and games that exceeded even my own expectations. He simply demanded maximum effort and effective execution from himself at all times and refused to quit until it was achieved. Since he never felt it was totally and completely achieved, he never quit. That goes uh, back to success being a process and not a destination. Since he never felt it was totally and completely achieved, he never quit. That's buying into that idea that uh, mastery, success, greatness is a process. Okay, back to the book. Uh, his will to improve created a very real sense that if you wanted to associate with him professional, professionally, to be on a Ronnie Lott team, you were expected to sacrifice to the same degree he did. When a grueling set of push-ups was concluded by the coaching staff, Ronnie would often call for more. He would be the one setting the standard higher and higher. This was true during the season he joined us and San Francisco won a Super Bowl. It was equally true the following season when our one lost record went in the tank, 3-6. and six. He never quit. Ronnie Lott character reveals itself most starkly in two completely different circumstances. When victory or success is almost a given, and conversely, when there is little or no likelihood of victory. The former tempts an individual to become complacent to ease up, the latter tempts an individual to start belly aching and quit. Ronnie never let up or never gave up or let down. Consistent commitment and sacrifice in all situations was his trademark. He did what individuals with this kind of character do when facing either circumstance. Lot was constant in his drive to excel. This is very hard for an individual to do. But imagine how it transforms those within the organization. And imagine the pleasure it brings to the life of a leader. So that's, I mean, that's huge. You know, that right there is living your, your standard of performance, your, your personal standard of performance and the team standard of performance. And obviously, if you're a leader, having someone, 
like that is going to make your life a whole lot easier to have those kinds of people in your team. And two, you know, obviously having, I think it's important, you know, Ronnie Lott, who we just used as an example, um, you know, was a key player, Hall of Fame player. But, you know, and obviously his personality was such just to, to keep driving and, you know, to be as great as he could be and never letting up, never giving up. But, you know, he, you got, if you can get your key, the key members of your organization to buy into your standard, that will continue to, to trickle down, right? So, you know, we talked about last week from the book about how leadership trickles down or percolates down, I think was a use, word he used. So, you know, if you can get your, your best people to buy in, your your leaders under you, that, that will make your life a lot easier. But you got to do that by holding yourself to the to your own standard and living it. All right, so now he talks about ego. We'll go back to the book. Don't let anybody tell you that a big ego is a bad thing. Tiger Woods, Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, and Cal Ripken Jr. have lots of ego. And so does anyone anywhere who is dedicated to taking his or her talent as far as it will go. I've got a big ego too. Here's what a big ego is. Pride, self-confidence, self-esteem, self-assurance. Ego is a powerful and productive engine. In fact, without a healthy ego, you've got a big problem. Egotism is something else entirely. It's an ego that's been inflated like a hot air balloon. Arrogance that results from your own perceived skill, power, or position. You become increasingly self-important, self-centered, and selfish, just as a hot air balloon gets pumped with lots of hot air until it turns into some big, ponderous entity that's slow, vulnerable, and easily destroyed. So that is, that's an important distinction to make, right? You know, you're, you're not going to get anywhere if you don't have pride in yourself and your work, if you don't have self-confidence and esteem and assurance and belief in yourself and, and your abilities. You're not going to get anywhere with that. You know, you have to have that. And, you know, I, I think it's, it's important to make that distinction. It is true. You know, e ego is a, is a lot of times a bad word. But he's Walsh here says that don't let anyone tell you that big ego is a bad thing. And that's true in the sense that any anyone, not just the people he listed there, Tiger Woods, Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, they do have big egos in the sense that they have pride and confidence and belief in themselves. But you don't want to let that become egotism. So that's where ego becomes a problem. When you become egotistic, when you know you think you're the most important center of the universe, and that's where it becomes a problem. And that's where so ego ego can help can help you a lot. Egotism will more than likely destroy. So, 
avoid it. Avoid letting your ego kind of get in the way of where you want to go. Or excuse me, avoid becoming egotistic. You know, Pat Riley, I think, called it the disease of me. And, you know, it's it, it takes some work to, especially once you've achieved something great, to keep that in check and prevent your ego from becoming egotistic. And that's that's very difficult. You know, that's why that's why sustained success is I mean it's it's not impossible but it's difficult because you have to keep those things those elements in check. Because it's I mean it's part of what got you there. Your self-confidence, your your self-esteem is part of what got you there. But if you let it get out of control, you if you let yourself become egotistic, that is what will bring you down. Okay. So this next section he titles Zero Points for Winning Means You're Losing. So this is kind of this this section is talking about controlling your anxiety about failure and your fear of failure. And which is, you know, where you're, you're, even though you're, you're winning, if you say you give yourself zero points for winning means you're losing. So he talks about, and this is, this is after the 49ers had had a run of, you know, sustained success, winning multiple Super Bowls. Later, a good play and execution were still able to produce satisfaction, but only if accompanied by a win. Eventually, good play and execution, even when accompanied by victory, by victory, produced virtually no ongoing satisfaction or pleasure, just momentary relief. I got zero points for winning. Victory meant little more than de- delaying the pain of loss as I quickly turned to the next game and the next one and the next one each offering no more than the opportunity to postpone the awful feelings that accompany defeat while doing nothing to remove the fear of it. When this happens, any kind of loss, mistake, or setback becomes very disturbing, even devastating, because you've attached your self-image to the results of the competition. Winning can become insidious for the same reason that is you allow the victory to begin begin determining your self-worth, how you feel about yourself. Either way, you are putting yourself on a slippery slope when you start believing that the outcome of your effort represents or embodies who you really are as a person and what your value as a person is. I speak from personal experience. So, you know, that that's important. When you when you once you reach success, you don't want to let your self-worth be defined by the outcome of a game. Because look, inevitably you're going to have losses, you're going to take some beatings, you're going to take some hits. So, and that's kind of where, you know, mastery, mastery is a process, not a destination. If you focus on the process and knowing that by doing that, you're going to get to where you need to be, that I think will help stave off some of what he's talking about. But when you let the destination 
become who you are and become yourself where that's when you can get into trouble. And so he then gets, he gives a few points here on, on how he thinks you can avoid falling into that trap. Which Walsh, and Walsh fell into the trap himself, but these are him looking back on it, uh, are his thoughts on avoiding that trap. So it says, let me, share, let me share some thoughts on avoiding the trap I fell into. Some ideas on how to deal with escalating expectations that become preposterous, personalization of results, and zero points for winning. I must admit that I'm not sure any of this would have benefited me by the time I reached the end of my rope. The time to do it is before your tank is empty. So it's important to, you know, if you see yourself kind of going down that slope to kind of check yourself before you wreck yourself, if you will, as the line goes, um, to avoid falling into that trap of, you know, getting zero points for winning. Just to, you know, you're winning just to stave off disappointment and loss. So number one he says, do not isolate yourself. While your spouse and family can be extremely important for support, they may not be equipped to deal with the magnitude of your professional issues in this area. Thus, develop a small, trusted network of people whose opinions you respect and are willing to honestly evaluate. My own makeup resisted this. As I marched forward as head coach, I became isolated, increasingly separated, even lonely. Keep your lines of communication open with mentors and professionals in your business whom you trust, even a professional counselor. I had one for a while. They can help you restore perspective and help clarify and prioritize situations and responsibilities. Be very discreet about whom you confide in. Crying on someone's shoulder, if it's the wrong, somebody can have negative repercussions. All right, number two. Delegate abundantly. If you've done your job in leadership, you've brought on board individuals who are very talented. Allow them to use their talent in ways that serve the team and lighten your load. If you've hired and taught them well, they will do their job. I confess it was hard for me to amply delegate, even though I was surrounded by exceptionally talented people. I hired them, added to their expertise, and then had trouble turning some of them, especially on the offensive side of the game, fully loose to do their jobs. I was like a man dying of thirst who was sitting on the edge of a mountain stream. I denied myself what was available. Number three, avoid the destructive temptation to define yourself as a person by the one lost record, the score. However you define it, don't equate your team's one loss record with your self-worth. Number four, shake it off. Marv Levy lost four straight Super Bowls as a head coach of the Buffalo Bills and was able to keep it in perspective. It hurts like the devil for 10 days or two weeks, and then you bury it and go back to work and look ahead. Bud Grant lost four Super Bowls as head coach of the Minnesota Vikings and was able to keep it in perspective. I've got a 24-hour rule. You only let it bother you for 24 hours, and then it's over. So I think those are good rules to avoid getting into that, uh, that trap. You know, a loss is a loss. It doesn't define who you are, you know, shake it off and move on. 
All right, back to the book. One of the common traits of outstanding performers, coaches, athletes, managers, sales representatives, executives, and others who face a daily up-down, win-lose accounting system is that a rejection, that is defeat, is quickly forgotten, replaced eagerly by pursuit of a new order, client or opponent. They know that a defeat, whether a lost account or a loss on the field, can't be taken personally. Like Bud Grant, they shake it off and go forward, and so must you. In my early days, I did this too. I firmly believe that if I took care of my job, the score would take care of itself. When it didn't, I worked even harder to improve my coaching and elevate the standard of performance of our team. This is one of the reasons I drove myself so relentlessly. But gradually, I found it harder and harder to accept my concept that the score will take care of itself. I became consumed with how the score would take care of itself, whether it would be in a manner that resulted in victory for me. I became overwhelmed with worry about that score and lost sight of the fact that in a fight you go as hard as you can, do all you're capable of doing, knowing that ultimately, while you can influence the result to a greater or lesser degree, you do not control the result. If, you work, if your hard work is coupled with intelligence and talent, you may win. If not, you go back to work and get ready for the next fight without feeling that somehow, having given it everything you've got, as I did for 10 years, you are somehow inadequate as a person, that you didn't measure up. You can't let that happen to yourself. And I think that's huge. I think that's huge to understand that you can't let defeat or you know unrealistic unrealistic expectations consume you. You know you gotta you gotta you gotta have a twenty four hour rule. You gotta shake it off and move on. You know you gotta you gotta win or, you, you know, win or learn. You know, if you do lose, that doesn't define who you are. You have to, you got to shake that off and move on. Learn from your defeat and understand that, you know, when he talks about mastery being a process, not a destination, that falls into the, the very title of the book, that if you focus on the process and work hard and do the things that you need to, to do, that ultimately... The score will take care of itself. You know, listen, you can't really control the result of, of, of what you're doing. You can just put yourself in the best position to try to influence that result. And as long as you are doing what you need to be doing, and if you're, you know, you're operationally sound, your, your standard is there. The score is going to take care of itself. Don't, don't lose sight of that. It's very important that you keep that in mind. All right, last passage from the book. I believe it's true in your profession. Your effort in the beginning is part of a continuum of effort. Your standard of performance is part of a continuum of standards. Today's efforts become tomorrow's result. The quality of those efforts becomes the quality of your work. One day is connected to the following day and the following month to the succeeding years. 
Your own standard of performance becomes who and what you are. You and your organization achieve greatness. For me, the road has been rocky at times, triumphant too. But along the way, I have never wavered in my dedication to installing, teaching, those actions and attitudes I believe would create a great team, a superior organization. I knew that if I achieved that, the score would take care of itself. As you've seen, there were stretches where I found it impossible to truly allow that to happen when I became almost terrified of losing, of letting the score take care of itself. But ultimately, I got back to it. On that final San Francisco 49er drive, 92 yards to a championship, I was at peace knowing the score, one way or another, would take care of itself. And it did. Hugely, hugely impactful book. Um, I encourage everybody to go on Amazon, go on Barnes & Noble, go to your local bookstore or whatever and try to find this book. It's one of the best uh, leadership books that I've ever read. And just overall a great philosophy you know, to take forward. Even if you're not a leader, the things that you can apply to... Uh, to your life are, are, I mean, there, there's something on every page. And, and, and when I say, if you're not a leader, I mean, if you're not a leadership is in a leadership position, a designated leadership position, because you can always be a leader. You can set your own standard of performance for yourself, live that and have that, you know, percolate and trickle down to, to the people around you. And, you know, do that. Figure out what your standard of performance is. You know, you set the standard for yourself. No one else, no one else should. You can set the standard for yourself regardless of where you are. And if you have people under, under you, set the standard, live it, make sure it trickles down to them. If you don't have people working under you, doesn't matter. Still do it. And see where you know see how that impacts your life and the people around you live it breathe it make it become part of who you are that that standard of performance i think that's really key and uh you know understand that that it's a process you know by but by living that standard the score ultimately will take care of itself regardless of what you're doing so Thank you, everybody, for listening. Again, I encourage you, please go out and get this book. It is it is awesome. Um, I liked it even more the second time I read it. I'm, I'm sure I'll probably read it again. So go out, take these lessons, buy the book, read it, apply them to your life, get better. So thank you, to everybody, for listening. Uh, follow me on Instagram at read r-e-i-d underscore ebersole e-b-e-r-s-o-l-e -E. give me a follow hit me up on there with any questions you have um if you like the show uh leave a five-star review preferably um, but i'd love to hear your feedback on itunes and google play or on uh, instagram if you want to connect with me there 
Uh, we got the Fired Up for Monday playlist on Spotify. My favorite songs to uh, that I use to get me fired up when I'm training, when I just, you know, when I need to get, pick me up, need to get fired up. Uh, we've got that playlist up there. And I think that is it for this episode, episode 10, Timeless Podcast. Thank you to everybody for listening. I love you. Have a great week. Kick ass, take names. Let's go.